It's Tuesday, the 26th of May. I'm Jules Breach, he's Andy Brassel, and this is Jules and Andy on Football Ramble Daily. So much to discuss today. We'll chat about the latest news in restarting football, but also on the flip side, the ending of the WSL and the psychological impact this break is having on players up and down the pyramid. Yeah, with that in mind, Jules, let's go straight into a conversation I had yesterday with Dr. Tim Rogers, sports psychiatrist with Cognacity, who works with a number of Premier League and EFL players and clubs. And I began by asking him if players at below elite level might be suffering particular anxiety in the current situation. For sure, that, that's true. I mean, definitely. And it's not just players too. Obviously, there's a whole a whole uh, system of, of coaches and managers and support staff that, that work with those players. And, and, and definitely for those people, you know, many of them, you know, their, their anxieties and stresses have, have risen for, for a number of different reasons. So if we think of like the intensity of, of, of the way Premier League players live their careers... Um, I mean, you've you've written an article about it. Um, What are the sort of common problems that you speak to players about that might have been exacerbated by lockdown? Common stresses in top-level football? Yeah, I think, you know, there are certain kind of... um, There are certain common stresses that that are, I suppose, specific to people who, who perform highly. Firstly, and most obviously, you know, every every athlete has had to assess their immediate sporting goals and often athletes or people who uh, perform highly you know their their self-worth and their self-esteem perhaps more so than other people can be really tightly bound to their identity as, as a footballer and an absence of competitive play or uncertainty about when that might return you know results in doubt and negativity rising a lot uh, and there are all sorts of other things as well, such as such as uh, schedules and routines. So, for example, athletes might well wake early in the day to train, uh, and their days are probably pretty highly organised. And and so, when you suddenly go into lockdown, uh, athletes have frequently found that their sleep wake cycles or other routines have have been a real a real problem. Um, yeah, and, and I think I suppose the other thing to say is is that obviously, like all of us. Some athletes have better or worse mental health, and, and there are certain condition-specific problems that have been a real struggle for athletes during the lockdown. And to give you a couple of examples, uh, some people with disordered eating, for example, uh, often in uh, often in aesthetic sports, but but also in football, you know, it's it's harder to control those kind of eating behaviours if you're if you're at home very close to your fridge. Uh, and also, I guess another example is is obsessive compulsive disorder OCD, and so uh, where where there are public health messages about the importance of hand washing and worries about contamination. If you already have OCD, which many uh, footballers do, you know it's, it's really difficult to to manage and cope with those kind of health messages. So, has there been an increase in demand for like the use of your services during the the, the pandemic from from players? Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I work. One of the services I work for is, is called Big White Wall, and that's an online uh, anonymous mental health service. Uh, and the the traffic and the and the sign ups for membership on Big White Wall has been up around about a hundred percent since the pandemic. Wow. So a huge uh, increase in need and traffic. Uh, but but I think that's that's online support. But I would say that in terms of face to face support, because of anxiety uh, about 
about obviously catching COVID-19. Many people mm. are st- have, have stayed away from general practitioners or from uh, from accident emergency departments. And, and I would say that there's been probably a slight reduction in face-to-face uh, appointment seeking. And, and probably what that means is that you know, there's, there's a higher level of, of unmet need out there. So athletes who are going through a really difficult moment but, but may not have the, the support that they would probably benefit from receiving. If we're looking at the Premier League itself, we've had a few players so far, like Troy Deeney, um, talking about their anxiety about the prospect of coming back to even do light, sort of individual training do you think this could be the start as we move forward of a more frank conversation about mental health and about how elite footballers actually feel yeah i mean, think it's really interesting that you that you said that as a society everybody knows that we have a stigma about mental well-being problems and mental ill health and i think it's true that that's slowly changing and it certainly helps in professional sport that Many uh, players have many many high profile players have come forward uh, at times and, and given testimonials about what they've been through. I would say it's interesting that many of the players and athletes that do that are often players who have either retired already or maybe maybe about to retire. And I would say that that the professional sports and in particular football is still not really a safe place to confide about mental ill health. In non-sporting employment, there are clear laws about not discriminating against people who have health conditions or disabilities. Uh, but, but in football, that can't be imposed in the same way. Uh, I, I know the reality is that the elite footballers that I work with guard their confidentiality fiercely for, for the simple reason that they feel that their transfer value or their transfer prospects are quite likely to be seriously impacted if they were to openly come out and talk about what they've been through and I think aside from the sort of practicalities of it definitely there remains a sort of sense among elite athletes that they should be tough and they should have grit and they should push through whatever they're going through and I suppose that's what they're taught in many situations they're kind of trained to try and be like that but that's a problem if you if you have something that you need to seek help for but you feel like doing so would make you weak and I often have one of the first conversations conversations I, I have to have is, is of a kind that you know well mental health problems are not weaknesses they're, they're health problems and that's different finally it does look as if the Premier League w- will be on the way back at, at some point how will players and clubs have to manage the concerns of players going forward because it will be a very different environment that they'll be coming back into especially behind closed doors and with very heightened uh, safety and hygiene procedures. So, how will they manage that? And have clubs or players been in touch with you about that already? Yeah, for sure. So, when I speak to to, to sport and exercise medicine doctors in Premier League clubs, they I know uh, that there are sort of national meetings and national networks of communication and uh, and I suppose shared decision making and advice about how best. To, to, to do this and it's obviously something completely novel we've never had to do anything like this ever before so there's an extent to which we're finding our feet as we go along um, however I, I know that a lot of thought and care is going into it and many 
football clubs not least because they their, their players are extremely expensive assets but also because their athletes are people too you know are, are investing a lot of time and effort in looking after their players uh, I, I suppose it's really important that as, as well as, as that that each club has to has to be a kind of a psychologically safe place so it has to be okay to talk about what you're going through all your worries or fears without um concern about other people shutting that conversation down or or I suppose responding to that in a negative way and you know actually that that ha- those those kind of club environments ha- have a really big impact on performance as well so so even before the pandemic you know it's, it's something that, that clubs are aware of in terms of looking after the emotional health of their of their players for a whole variety of reasons. Dr. Tim Rogers there, sports psychiatrist with Cognacity. He's also involved with um, Big White Wall, uh, which is an online service uh, providing access to millions with anxiety, depression, and other common mental health issues. You don't have to be a sports person to get involved. And um, as Tim was saying, they've had a huge upturn in traffic uh, during the pandemic. That's bigwhitewall.com. Yeah, and I think it's a really important discussion to have, particularly as it's been Mental Health Awareness Week as well. So a lot of sports people, a lot of people in the public eye have been talking about mental health this week. And particularly while we're going through such an uncertain time, I think that it's really important to be quite open about discussing this. And and some of the things that that Dr. Tim discussed with you were, were really interesting. And it, it reminded me of um, an article that I read earlier on in this week, from on the athletic from Adam Crafton, um, who discussed a lot of these mental side effects that could be affecting particularly EFL players, which is something I know that we're we're gonna discuss in greater detail. But one of the parts of the article I found really interesting is that um Adam Crafton points out that the PFA did a survey and of the 111 current players who responded to the survey, 24 of them said that they were depressed or considering self-harm. And from 262 current and ex-players, nearly 70% were worried about their livelihood and 72% were feeling nervous and anxious about their future. And at the moment, I think that that is really important to discuss, Andy, because with particularly a lot of the lower league EFL clubs, there are going to be so many players who are coming to the end of contracts next month in June and who will be left without a job. And the kind of side effects that that can have, the mental effects that they're going to be going through at the moment, not knowing what their future holds, must be really tough. Yeah, I I think so. And um, it's it's something that um, Dr. Tim brought up on there, the fact that, um, you know, some of these players don't don't have long-term financial security you know you're you're looking at um guys who are um on one or 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 two-year contracts uh, league one or or two level and um another point in this athletic athletic article is the fact that you know there's there's going to be a huge market out there for for players now funnily enough for clubs that's going to be one of the few bits of good financial news that really comes out of this pandemic because mm. there's going to be a huge pool of players for them to choose from. And I think players that maybe would have been out of your price range before you will find will be in your price range now because clubs will have um, less money to pay players and players will simply need to work. So I think for them, 
as with a lot of the rest of the world, um, they'll they'll be taking lower wages, and and that will be tough. I mean, the bit that I thought was brilliant actually in the Athletic article is um, the, the bit that um, Adam relayed from uh, Graham Sunes on on Sky Sports. Now, I know Sunes is someone that a, a lot of people have a, a particular view of, a sort of old school guy, um, a man's man, but. He says here, and Adam relays the words from um, uh, his, his recent uh, chat on Sky Sports. As soon as I said, uh, there are going to be tragic cases. There will be players who are professional footballers today who will not be in six months. There is a correction uh, coming all across the country for all the different money the Chancellor has handed out. He now somehow has to come up with taxes in an acceptable way to get that back, and football will fall into that category. Clubs will find themselves in dire financial straits and may end up going out of business. The consequence of that will be players on the dole. The talk is the mother of all recessions. This is the time when the big guys in football have to think of everybody involved. There has to be a sharing of the incredible riches of the Premier League. There will be so many casualties and we have to take care of the little guys. Now, I, I felt that was great that Sunes came out and, uh, and talked like that. And hopefully people... Um, will respond to that. But it was interesting seeing um, the player who was brought in at the beginning of the article, uh, Connor Simpson, who's contracted yeah. to Preston, but has been out on loan at various clubs, in, including Carlisle. And he was saying in his WhatsApp group with his friends, and you know, bear in mind, he's 20. A lot of them are talking about you know possibilities, career possibilities outside football. And there will be players who drift from the game. Now that that's sad, of course, but you know I think we have to have a real concern for players who are in deeper as well, players who have families and financial responsibilities that they're really going to struggle to meet. Absolutely, and Connor Simpson is just one of fourteen hundred players in the EFL whose contracts expire next month. That is a huge number of individuals who will be currently feeling uncertain about their future and not knowing what comes next. And when you talk about the players who have families to support, who have young children, who maybe have elder relatives that also live with them, the impact that this could have on their lives is huge. I think there's this common thought, Andy, of kind of footballer status, isn't there? That a lot of people think that all footballers all fall under the same bracket. They're all loaded. They don't have any financial concerns, but that's really not the case. Not all footballers earn 20 grand a week, do they? And and when we look lower down in the EFL, some of these footballers might earn a fairly average salary, just like a lot of other people do up and down the country. And that means that they certainly don't earn enough money to go six months without work and it not be damaging to their home life and to to them being able to support their families. You know, there are going to be a lot of these players at the moment who will be worried about affording their household bills, considering taking mortgage holidays and dreading that unemployed feeling that a lot of them are going to going to kind of potentially fall into in the next couple of months. And I think the subject of mortgages is so interesting. They they talked about this in the Athletic article that a lot of people, so you and I, for example, Andy, probably have 25 year long mortgages, mortgage terms, and we'll pay them off slowly across the years. Whereas footballers 
I didn't realize this, but it all makes complete sense once I read, it made complete sense once I read the article that a lot of footballers tend to take out shorter terms on their mortgages because they get paid such a large sum of money in a short space of time because they have shorter careers. So they, the hope for them is that they manage to pay off these mortgages by the time they retire in their 30s. And then they don't have a huge mortgage and any huge debt kind of hanging over them once they retire. Yes. I'd never really thought about that, but actually you can see just how quickly that would become problematic if they're out of work for a sustained period of time, can't you? Yeah, there's there's no doubt about that. And um, I think as well, the other thing that we, we have to talk about, apart from the financial aspect, and another thing we, we, we heard there from, from Dr. Tim, it's not just about, I think, players in League One and League Two being a bit close to, in inverted commas, normal people and, and their sort of... Um, way that they go through life and their, their sort of means and, and income. Um, but I think it is about, as you you said before, Jules, the status. I mean, I think mm. for a lot of people, work is sense of self. Um, but I think particularly, as, as Tim was saying, the footballers who from a very early age have to decide between, you know, academic priorities, you know, social priorities – and just completely concentrating on sport because very few players start out thinking, right, I'm going to play for Coventry City or Macclesfield Town or whatever. You're there aiming to get to the very top. And, you know, maybe it doesn't work out like that. And the players who are successful in League One and League Two are the ones who um, evacuate that slight disappointment maybe uh, and manage to make a good career in, in the lower divisions. Um, but still, you've been a footballer probably since you were eight, nine years old, maybe yeah. even younger. And the, all of a sudden, you're not able to have that. And not only are you not able to have that, but that sense of self might be absent for another six months or another 12 months if you don't get picked up by a club. And maybe maybe never if if you end up being one of those players who doesn't get picked up at all. I mean, that is something that's very difficult to cope with. Of course, like financial concerns are important and, you know, that affects mental health and that affects um, the well-being of, of, of your family. But I think as important is the fact that for footballers who've committed their whole lives to doing what they're doing, um, it's, it's something that, that must be incredibly difficult to, to get your head around. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I guess that a lot of these footballers are, are now kind of looking at exactly how the EFL is going to complete this season if they are to do so. And and going back yeah. to your comments about um, what Graham Souness has said about this, um, Richard Masters, the head of the Premier League, has said, in terms of our commitments to other people in terms of this season, we've made good of those commitments to our solidarity partners, including the EFL. And in terms of 2021, we've forwarded 50% of that money to them. Of course, we want to continue to support the football pyramid. And I think this is a growing concern, isn't it? And, and another kind of big talking point is how the football pyramid are going to be supported financially. 
if this break in football does continue. And we've had an email about this from Freddie Webb. Thanks for your email, Freddie, who says, Hey, Jules and Andy, given that many football league clubs are living off the furlough scheme and seem to be weeks away from going bust rather than months, do you see the Premier League, the government, or another source providing them with financial support as gate receipts will likely be cut off until 2021? He says, as a Portsmouth fan growing up, I know all too well what it's like for my football club to be close to shutting down forever. And I would hate to see hundreds of thousands of football fans across the country potentially losing their football club. It's something that the Huddersfield town owner, Phil Hodgkinson, was also warned about this week in the press. um, It's been reported that he thinks the Football League could lose up to 60 sides through bankruptcy if clubs are required to play in empty stadiums next season, Andy. What are your thoughts on that and what Freddie's pointed out? Um, Well, they're going to need help from somewhere uh, if if football is going to continue and the the English pyramid is going to continue in its its, its current shape. I don't think there's any any doubt about that. Um, And it it would be nice to see something proactive. I mean, what we saw with um, Harry Kane sponsoring Leighton Orient through um, supporting a, a, a couple of different channels, I think was fantastic. But we don't want clubs relying on individuals, really. It would be nice if it was something collective and it was something based in the football community, even though what Harry Kane's done is is, is absolutely wonderful. Um, but uh, I think what they need for the moment is is certainty. And that's that's where the, the the problem has been. Now, obviously, the championship has resolved to to carry on, and there are very few dissenting voices. I think it's just Hull City at, at the moment who um, are not on side with that. Um, and they went back into training yesterday, didn't they, Andy? The yes. championship clubs, I believe. Yeah. Yes, that's that's right. And um, League Two is obviously at the other end of the scale, although <laughs> with the decision agreed in principle for it to come to an end, we still don't know what's happening in terms of relegation because it seems as if the league might overrule the wishes of the clubs and relegate Stevenage or, for example, um, at the at the end of the the, the the season when 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 they do finally draw a line under it. Um, the, the the difficult one, the really difficult one, is League One. And League yeah. One is so difficult because there are some absolutely huge clubs in it. And, and that's what the problem is because I think League One and League Two clubs aren't in such a different situation in that going on with outgate receipts, um, it will cost them more to put on the games than, than they'll get in. And, and so they'll, they'll just be shipping even more money out. Um, if they were to continue over the summer, you're looking at extending contracts of players who the, the last thing they need is to, to, to carry on paying out of, out of contract players. So that would be tough as, as well. But if you look at some of the teams in league one, I mean, we mentioned a name like Coventry who, you know, it's, it's been less than 20 years since they're out of the premier league, uh, Portsmouth, um, who Fred mentioned before when he when he when he wrote in Sunderland, of course, we've seen a lot about the the effect of relegation on them. If if you've been watching the Netflix series um, Sunderland till I die, so you can understand the anxiety of these clubs to to want to continue as well. And there's something we've seen at all levels, you know, people fighting their own corners, and you, you can completely understand that, even if it's been done in quite a clumsy way. Um, 
the news that we've got at the moment is that it seems that the majority of League One teams might go for points per game. Now, I don't think that would be the end of it by any stretch of the imagination. Now, in, in terms of if the season's curtailed, um, apparently 51% of clubs, including I think it's 13 from the championship, have to approve the idea before the EFL then go back to the League One clubs and ask them to vote again on what's actually going to happen. And they, they reckon it's pretty balanced at the moment. Um, but there, there, are, there are a few clubs who have said they will, in inverted commas, go with the flow, according to reports. So they would basically back the majority, and that would be enough to give a, a narrow majority to relegate the three teams who are at the bottom at the moment. So that would be uh, Tramia, Southend, uh, and Bolton, if, if they went for either points per game or weighted points per game, although it seems it will be standard points per game the, the way it's done. And that Coventry and Rotherham would go up at the top. And I guess to quell the disquiet of those those bigger clubs, they would still go on with the four-team playoff. So I think at the moment it's Oxford, Portsmouth, Wickham and Fleetwood who are in there, um, which again, I, I don't think would be here in the end of it because it would mean Sunderland, for example, yeah. would 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 just miss out. So, you know, we've known all along there are no easy solutions. But as far as the EFL goes, League One is by far the most complicated issue and, and we'll see what happens. I think with all of these things, as you say, Andy, there is no resolution that kind of makes everybody happy. There's going to be something that upsets one team or a couple of teams. And and I think that that's the difficult thing at the moment is that whatever solution they come up with, it's going to upset some people. And, and unfortunately, that's just the situation that we're living in at the moment. Understandably, because that is the next stage, i.e. how we finish this season, that seems to be where all the emphasis is at the moment. But of course, for owners and fans of clubs in more so the lower the lower leagues of the EFL, the fear for them isn't necessarily how we finish this season. It's actually what happens to their clubs after that. Solar suit and tie self-serving fools who can't remember the last time they ever paid to get in to see a game have stuck a dagger through the heart of football's fairness and integrity. In the midst of difficult decisions at a difficult time, we only wanted those running the game to protect the soul of football and the absolute clowns couldn't even do that. I think it's a disgrace. My heart goes out to Mark Palios and Nicola Palios and the, the Tranmere fans as well. It's not right. Jules and Andy on Football Ramble Daily. And of course, you can always get in touch with us at Jules Breach, at Andy Brassel, Jules and Andy at footballrambledaily.com. Now, we were talking about um, the plans to finish the EFL season by whichever means um, in the first part. And now we're going to talk about um, a season that definitely has finished um, the FA Women's Super League and Championship of um, both finished with immediate effect. Um, we don't know on how the final tables will be calculated at the moment, whether they'll be voided, um, whether they'll have um, positions determined using points per game. I mean, it could be quite interesting at the top because Manchester City are a point ahead of Chelsea, but they played a game more. Um, and if it was um, points per game either weighted or unweighted, then 
Chelsea would be top, which would obviously have implications in terms of Champions League qualification, as well as a potential title being awarded or not awarded. Um, Jules, it seems like everyone's on board to finish the season, uh, to finish the season as as is. And um, Casey Stoney came out and said um, it was the right decision for the safety of everyone involved. And now we've got to focus on our development for, for next season. We'll come to the second part of that in a little bit. Um, but what are, what are your views on the conclusion of the season? It's obviously disappointing. Um, there could still be a bit of toing and froing over how it's actually going to be finished or do, do you do you think it'll be more civil than we've seen in other areas of football? Well, I think what you said a minute ago, Andy, about the fact that it, they seem to kind of all be on board with the season ending. I think that's probably, that feels like it's the case because unfortunately this is the news that they all assumed was coming. It's kind of been reported over the last few weeks that the WSL and the Women's Championship were likely to be ended and they wouldn't be completing their season. So I think that from the meeting yesterday when the decision was finally made that the seasons were to be ended, I think it was just inevitable, if that makes sense. So I think they all kind of got it in their heads that this was the news that was coming. In terms of how they decide things like the champions of the season, uh, relegation, the Champions League places, or whether they decide to null and void it, like you say, that could maybe cause a bit of to and froing. Um, Matt Beard, who's the West Ham manager, told Five Live that he thinks points per game is the fairest way to finish the league. He said someone's going to be upset with the decisions that are going to be made, but it's no one's fault at the moment. It's just one of those things. And I think that that's probably how a lot of players, managers, football fans feel right now, considering the situation that we're in with this pandemic, is that this isn't ideal. This isn't what anyone would have wanted. But unfortunately, this is just the situation we find ourselves in. As you said, if it is done on points per game at the top, it's very interesting because Manchester City are leading the way, but Chelsea, as you say, have played a game fewer. And Arsenal, who are the reigning champions, who had an incredible season last year, are only three points behind Chelsea. So it's a very tight title race. And anything could have changed in the last few games of the season. There were actually still around eight games left to play for most clubs, which is actually around a third of the season. That's actually a hell of a lot of time. So you can understand perhaps that for Liverpool, who are bottom of the league, it's probably an anxious time for them because if it were to go to points per game, they would actually be the team to be relegated. They would stay bottom. Whereas if they actually played out the rest of their matches, of course, the belief of their manager and the belief of their players is that they would be able to turn things around and they'd be able to stay up in the the WSL. So it is a difficult one. And as Matt Beard says, you know, you're not going to make everybody happy. It's it's just one of those things. So I guess we'll have to wait and see what is decided. It's just kind of, it feels slightly unfair for certain teams, doesn't it? When you look at how tight it is at the top of the WSL with Manchester City, Chelsea and Arsenal, how do they pick the two teams that deserve to go into the Champions League based on points per game from what we've seen so far there's still eight matches of the season left to play it always to me it just feels really unjust do you know what I mean yeah and uh, I suppose the the fact as you say that um it's, it's been 
coming to an end is, is is not really a surprise, especially since we knew the FA weren't offering specific financial support to teams um, post COVID-19. So obviously that has implications in, in terms of um, hygiene protocols and stadiums and, and testing and all that other sort of stuff. I mean, Susie Rack wrote something in The Guardian um, saying that the, the fact that um, the Frauen Bundesliga is going to restart in Germany at the end of the week. I mean, what do you think this says about the the status of the WSL and, and and the clubs in it? Does that show that we've still got a bit of a, a way to go, that we really genuinely feel that the, the WSL is, is, is part of the football family? Do you think the, the FA could have done more? Yeah, that does make me feel a little bit like maybe we could have done more here and that perhaps these games could have been still finished. But I guess the thing is, is that these boards just they have to make decisions and 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 maybe they're under a bit of pressure to make decisions and maybe that's why they've decided to come to this decision i know that the um the reasoning for why the season has decided to be ended by the fa is that it came after overwhelming feedback from the clubs now that to me says that across the last 10 weeks that we've been off of football and that the players and the the teams have had this break they must have been conducting several meetings and from the feedback in these meetings it must be a case that the majority of these clubs felt that it was the right thing to do to end the season and that they were kind of happy to do so because otherwise I don't see why that would be the statement that the FA put out that there's overwhelming feedback from the clubs to end the season so it must be something that over time they've come to this decision and they feel that it's the, the best one they, they can come to. You know, the situation in Germany is very different. You know, yeah. they returned back to football a lot earlier than than we are. You know, we're still yet to find out when elite football in this country is going to return. A decision still hasn't been made on that, but it's looking like it's now been pushed even further back to around June the 26th from an article I read in the Times earlier today. So if that's the case, then we are obviously working to a very different timescale and very different kind of borderlines, I guess, with this virus, Mm. whereas Germany have obviously had it under better control. So perhaps they're in a very different situation and they've been able to complete their women's league where we've not been able to do so. Either way, it is done. Uh, what have been your highlights of, of, of the season, Jules? Oh, do you know what? It's been such an amazing Women's Super League season and I've been fortunate enough to be involved in a lot of the matches with, with BT Sport. And I think there are so many highlights to take from it. And I, and I don't want the fact that the season has been ended to kind of take anything away from what a brilliant season it's been because I have absolutely no doubt that despite this break in football when the football returns next season, when it's safe to do so, when the WSL and the championship returns, I really do hope that we see the big crowds that we've seen this season, which for me has been one of the highlights, seeing that increased interest in the women's game and just an improvement to the view of the women's game as well from football fans that weren't previously involved in women's football. You know, the the, the kind of fans that have written into us on Jules and Andy saying how much they've enjoyed learning about the women's game from the discussions that we've had here on the podcast. I mean, I think that this season has been a real 
growing point for for the women's game and I hope that that continues but for me the highlights for one of them has to be the Manchester derby at the start of the season when I got to host that game for BT and it was the first match back to the WSL season Manchester United had just been promoted from the championship into the WSL playing against Manchester City it was held at the Etihad. So having a game of that magnitude, a Manchester derby, the first ever Manchester derby in the WSL in the top flight of women's football to be played at one of the men's stadiums, which was something that had been promised during the summer when we were at the Women's World Cup and we heard that it was going to be a big season for WSL and we were going to see lots of games being played in the men's stadiums. I wasn't sure whether it would ever happen. So for me that day to arrive at the Etihad and see over 30,000 football fans arrive to watch a Manchester derby in in the women's top flight was an incredible thing to see. And I had the Lionesses manager, Phil Neville, with me as a guest on the show, Karen Carney and Rachel Brown-Finnis, who both have over 100 caps for England each. Like It was just an amazing day, an amazing working experience, but also as a football fan and a fan of the women's game to see what growth the women's game had kind of taken over the last couple of years and particularly off the back of the Women's World Cup. That was a huge highlight for me. But in terms of on the pitch as well, we've seen so many amazing matches. There have been some incredible games, lots of other matches being played at at men's stadiums as well and, and seeing other huge crowds. But we've also seen, as we've already discussed, one of the tightest title races as well. The fact it's so close at the top and it's so competitive has been brilliant to watch. Watching Arsenal try and defend their title has been really exciting to see. And then we've seen the arrival of one of the best women's players in the world come to the WSL in Sam Kerr arriving at Chelsea. Just to be able to see her play in the WSL has been a really exciting thing. So there have been, yeah, plenty of highlights and I think lots of positives that this league can focus on and hopefully build on for next season. Yeah, we hope to see more of it. It's been fantastic seeing them as as, as part of part of the whole game at um, some some of the biggest stadiums in the country. And um, as you were saying, Chelsea showing a lot of ambition. Big deal for them to get back in the Champions League. And it looks like by hook or by crook, however they decide to finish the league, they they will be getting back into it. So interested to see how they get on next season. Before we go, um, we want to do a couple of bits of correspondence as always. Um, we've got one from uh, Stefan Leverton here. He says, hi, both of you. We'll jump right in and ask if there is any insight to the ticket situation in Germany. Last weekend saw the welcome return of some football in the, for the first time in months. Um, obviously, those games were played in empty stadiums, but presumably season ticket holders are technically paid to attend the game. I just wondered what clubs or authorities had done in terms of possible refunds, discount, future promises, or simply nothing related to tickets. I'm an Arsenal season ticket holder so far. I've heard nothing about renewals and refunds. I understand, of course, that it's an unprecedented situation and all that. Any insight to what's happening in Germany would be welcome. Yours sincerely, uh, Stefan. P.S. As an Arsenal fan, I chose Wolfsburg as my Bundesliga team. (laughs) Won the cup in recent years, the league sometime before that, currently outside European places, and I drive a VW. (laughs) Well, that's that's pretty good reasoning. Uh, Lots of parallels. Yeah, you've got got more than one reason there. what they've done, Stefan, is that they've all the clubs in the in the Bundesliga have given fans the right to reclaim their money back. In many cases, they've also said 
if you would not reclaim the money back, it would be very helpful to us. Um, Schalke have been one of those. And they, for example, offered a commemorative scarf or a commemorative shirt to fans who haven't um, taken their money back. Um, the other thing is you can get it as a, as a credit for the club shop. Um, quite a lot of other clubs have said, well, you can have your money back, but we could give the money to a social initiative so, for example, Dortmund are um, giving their uh, season ticket m- money that's uh, not claimed back by the season ticket holders uh, to um, organisations that have uh, helped to uh, combat COVID-19 and help vulnerable people with- within Dortmund and the surrounding area. Um, you look at Cologne, who have pledged to give any money that season ticket holders don't ask for back to amateur and grassroots football in the region and the city, which I think is an absolutely terrific initiative. So there are loads of different ideas. But we have to say as well, Jules, some Premier League clubs have already to pledge to give the money back led by what Manchester City and Everton. Yeah, exactly, Andy. Manchester City and Everton, two of the first clubs to, to have done that. They've offered full refunds to their fans that have prepaid for season tickets. At the start of lockdown, um, obviously, I follow all of Brighton's news very closely. And um, they were one of the first clubs to actually freeze direct debits right at the start of lockdown while everything was up in the air about what was happening with football. They've now also come forward and offered refunds to their fans for any season tickets because, of course, the rest of this season will be played behind closed doors if the football returns. So we are seeing Premier League clubs um, do that. I'm pretty sure that the majority of Premier League clubs will eventually follow suit on that as well. One last one uh, to squeeze in is from uh, Johnny Brown. He says, how's it going? I hope everyone is well. Just wanted to say that he didn't get to answer Eugene's question on the potential of an Irish team in the Premier League. As a proud Irishman who loves football, I would absolutely love for there to be a team based in my hometown of Dublin with maybe another team in Belfast or Cork so there could be a Cardiff-Swansea-esque rivalry. (laughs) It would also be brilliant for football in Ireland for there to be a Premier League stroke football league team due to mismanagement of their FAI. Um, I presume Andy is wanting to speak of his uh, Don's suggested switch to Dublin back in the day, Mm -hmm. but hopefully without that Egypt, Eamon Dunphy, his words, not mine, (laughs) uh, involved, uh, there could be a proper club set up in Ireland and we don't have to steal somewhere else's. I don't know where and how that could happen. I thought he was talking about you being an Egypt then. (laughs) (laughs) He might be. He might be. Um, I don't know where and how that could happen, but hopefully it could. Kind regards to everyone working hard during these times. Your work is very much appreciated. Johnny Brown, thanks for that, Johnny. Well, I'll go back to the original email from Eugene Waters that um, we didn't get to. He says, Hi, Jules and Andy. Love your show and the Football Ramble in general. Um, I used to listen to your shows on my way to and from playing gigs at the weekends, which were all cancelled, but now listen on my daily lockdown run within our five-kilometre radius. Um, A few weeks ago, I was running when I heard a documentary on an Irish sports show about the time when Wimbledon were apparently considering a move to Dublin. Um, My question to you guys is, what do you think would have happened if the move had happened. Would Wimbledon, supported by probably the entire population of Ireland, now be a top Premier League side playing at the Aviva? What would it have meant more widely for other clubs if it had been deemed a success? Would we have had Brighton playing in Brussels? There's a little (laughs) smiley face before you get too annoyed. Um, 
I know the idea grates against what many of us consider to be the right path for football, but equally it's not unheard of in other sports. I'm thinking American football, nor a million miles away from uh, the mooted Euro Super Leagues. And would it really be worse to have had a club like Wimbledon, given what eventually happened with the split playing in Dublin, as opposed to, say, Newcastle owned by Saudi Arabia? Anyway, keep up the good work, guys. I can't wait to hear you guys discussing real matches or potential transfers to my beloved Arsenal. Well, I don't know about the second part of that sentence, Eugene, um, <laughs> but but the rest of it is is really interesting because um, this was basically the reason why the Norwegian consortium, who eventually moved Wimbledon to Milton Keynes, it was the premise on which they were sold um, Wimbledon. Really, the idea that they would get to take it to Dublin and there'd be this huge new market to open it up to. Obviously. Um, the FAs in Ireland and um, in England didn't uh, agree with that. But of course, yes, there is um, room for that to happen. We were reminded about that when, of course, we've all been re-watching The Last Dance and um, we were talking about that last week, weren't we? And in in one of the the, um, finals, uh, the Bulls are playing the Seattle Supersonics who are no longer there. They got shifted lock, stock and barrel overnight to... um, Oklahoma City and uh, now the Oklahoma City Thunder are are a pretty successful franchise which of course is the difference between what's happened with them and what's happened with um, Wimbledon and and, and Milton Keynes um, because of course AFC Wimbledon the Phoenix Club are in in the same division as as Milton Keynes which I suppose is, is, is somewhat unprecedented it's an unbelievable story from both sides of of it really um and at least part of that is due to the cultural resistance that exists here, isn't it? To um, teams moving and the opprobrium that's been attached to to Milton Keynes, not just from traditional Wimbledon supporters as as, as well. Um, but I think it's interesting to to hear it rediscussed now because I wonder what sort of audience that sort of discussion would have now as opposed to when it was being discussed in the mid to late 90s because of course we're all far more conscious of the global nature of the Premier League audience now aren't we so um, we've had discussions since then about you know the 39th game. Uh, teams are far more into pre-season tours in untapped markets, as, as they like to say. So whereas for me, the idea is not an especially palatable one, um, I, I do wonder how it would be discussed if it was if it had been an idea that was brought to the table now or in the last five years for example i mean jules from your perspective if we were talking about not a club being pinched from the current premier league or football league but just say a new club existing in in ireland and being part of the premier league how how do you feel about that yeah this ain't for me andy I'm not I'm not I'm not feeling it I'm not going to lie. I don't know whether I'm just really old school in the way I feel about my football club but I don't know. I just don't I don't it doesn't sit right with me the kind of idea that I mean like Eugene kind of joked about but Brighton playing in Brussels for example. Yeah. Is that just, the point where he lost you? Yeah, I don't like it. <laughs> it's just and and I'm sure Brussels is great. I'm sure it's a wonderful place and I'd very much like to go on a holiday. But the thought of Brighton and Hove Albion being based out in Brussels or anywhere other than Brighton 
is just weird. It's weird enough when your football team stadium moves, you know, like you become so attached to just that location of where your stadium sits and that being the home of your football club to even move across the road to a new stadium or wherever it might be, you know, a couple miles down the road or whatever is weird enough, let alone moving city or moving country. It just, yeah, for me, this is just, it's just weird and it, it doesn't kind of feel right. But, you know, there have been discussions quite a lot about potentially a club like Celtic who are so successful in Scotland being part of the Premier League. That's something that's been discussed a lot, hasn't it? And, you know, a lot of people disagree with that, but it is an interesting discussion. I can see why it's something that's being discussed, but for me, I, I don't like the idea at all. There you go. Well, thanks for the question, uh, Eugene and <laughs> I've Johnny. I've made my point but quite clear, haven't I? <laughs> it, it, will, it will be a fairly resounding uh, no from us. Thanks for joining us as always this week. Remember, you can always get in touch at Jules Breach, at Andy Brassel, Jules and Andy at Football Ramble Daily. Uh, tomorrow on Ramble Meets, we'll be having the second part of Luke's interview with Danny Murphy. That's Ramble Meets Danny Murphy. If it's anything compared to the first part, it'll be a, a real treat. So you'll be able to get that on the Football Ramble Daily Feed as always. Yeah, loads of good stuff to listen to as always. But that's it from us this week. Andy, Dortmund Bayern tonight. Can't wait for that one. Will you be working on it or are you watching from home? Um, I will be watching it at home with my family nice. and doing a little bit of work on it on the sly as well. But yeah, remember, 5.30 kickoff. Don't sleep on it. Yeah, can't wait. All right, well, have a good week, guys, and we will see you next time on Jules and Andy. Bye. This was a Stakhanov production.